1: To all things therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I would love to hear from you and connect with you as my listener. Please reach out to me through my website. It is NOLAtherapy.com, the abbreviation for New Orleans, Los Angeles Therapy. And there you're able to email me if you're interested in being a guest on this show. Or if you'd like to recommend a guest, you're able to book therapy sessions with me at my New Orleans office location or Los Angeles office location, as well as book Skype, FaceTime, or phone sessions. You can listen to archived episodes of this show. Please keep subscribing on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. There are links at NOLA Therapy for that. And... On YouTube, I have a NOLA therapy channel, and I would love if you were to subscribe to that. I post shows to YouTube every month. So I am wanting to move to introduce my guest today. I am so happy in moments to be with Daphne Maxwell-Reed. She is the iconic TV mom known to us as Aunt Viv from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And she has been creating a legacy rooted in values important to her heart. They include, and we'll be talking about them today, educational activism, fine art and photography. She has published four books, fine art books of her photography. She's also published a cookbook that engages the reader with stories, jokes, how-tos in the kitchen, setting a table, a piece of her life and culture growing up in Manhattan, New York is in that book. And her creativity continues to find expression through her clothing line called Daphne Style. She started sewing at nine years old. We're going to talk all about this and how Daphne believes in living from a place of integrity and finding your truth without allowing the confines of your environment define who you are. She is a woman who has had many firsts as an African-American woman, And we're going to talk about some of those accomplishments. So we're going to settle into this dialogue today through a sound bath. And so whatever you're doing, just take a few moments to let it go. Let your day go. Let your thoughts go. And I'll be back with you in just a little bit. My kind of music. Yes, welcome. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. I know you love that music. I've, I picked it for you, for us, and for our listeners. How are you today?
0: I am excellent today. I'm just beaming today. The sun is shining, the weather is perfect, and I'm having
1: a great day. That's fantastic. Where do you want to start our listeners today about your really epic life's journey? and the way you influence and help people. Well, to help people, I'll start
0: by saying, just do it. You know, Nike said it well. Just do it. (laughs) Yes. You're born with a lot of God-given gifts, and it behooves you to express those gifts. And that's all I've been doing all of my life. I didn't set out with a path in mind. I went along with opportunities that arose and learned from each opportunity and each each new venture that I just jumped into I don't stick my toe in it I go all the way (laughs) and I have lived the most wonderful wonderful life and just celebrated my 70th birthday last Friday
1: happy belated birthday Daphne Thank you thank you. You're welcome. New decade, which means I got to start a new career. So you started. I figure out what I'm doing. You started new careers <laughs> at age 60. I don't know if you want to start there or if you want to go back to the beginning. It's really up to
0: you. It's all up to you. Where would you like? So we don't confuse these folks.
1: Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I was really excited preparing to interview you when I learned that at age 60 you decided that you are going to be a photographic artist and you went all the way publishing four books of beautiful doors that you had photographed, including a book, I love this title, Opening Doors, having to do with Cuba. Can you talk to us about that (laughs) process for you?
0: That concept was from friends. I've traveled a lot. I've been very blessed in my career to be able to travel with my husband and for shows and for all sorts of recreational reasons. And I always had a camera, because I got a camera when I was nine, and I'm never without one. And I traveled around, and I shot lots of pictures. I shot landscapes. I shot tiny flowers. I shot a lot of different things. But my background in interior design and architecture kind of always led me to the details of architecture. And I found that I had a whole collection of doors that I had shot from all over the world. Didn't know what drew me to the doors until I explored the concept of becoming a photographic artist. And that was because two friends of mine said, you know, these beautiful pictures you keep showing us from your trip should be in a gallery. Yes. And I said, well, I'm not an artist. They said, "Uh, maybe you are. (laughs) So on my 60th birthday, I said, I am a photographic artist. And now I have to figure out what that means. Mm. <laughs> and that started a wonderful, wonderful journey through collating all of the doors and shooting more and deciding how I wanted to present them to the world. So that's how my photography started and it still blooms now.
1: And I know in your in your photograph, in your work, the detail of a door and and just I, I've been thinking all week of the symbolism of doors that I know you talk about as well, a doorway being a an opportunity, a beginning. Can you talk to us some about those philosophies behind doors for you? Yeah, I, I kinda got the concept
0: um, and when I started this process, I had to write an artist statement. <laughs> so I kind of dug deep into why I'm attracted to doors and I realized that everybody is attracted to doors, even as the little tiny children who are running around in the kitchens of their houses, they're looking at the cabinet doors and want to know what's inside. So they start pulling on doorknobs. Mm. Well, that's kind of like what I want people to refresh in their growing up, that the curiosity of what's behind the door, the appreciation of the craftsmanship of doors, what nature and God has done to a door with time, with paint, all sorts of opportunities to look at the details in life, which make the journey through life very special. And doors to me are opportunity, adventure, curiosity, and they're a metaphor for life. They are what everyone must do is proceed through another door.
1: So true. Beautifully said. So I keep shooting doors, and we'll continue to shoot doors. People, what? You're weird. I'm going. Yeah, there are a lot of weird people out there who <laughs> love doors. <laughs> so, how did this development, your development as an artist, feed into your clothing design? You've also had a sewing machine along with the camera since you've been nine. Uh, there were seamstresses uh, in your family. How, how did that evolve?
0: I've been making clothes for myself all of my life because I'm. I like the challenge, the finite skill involved, and I like putting puzzles together. And to me, making a garment is like putting a puzzle together. I'm one of those ladies that you'll see on an airplane with my iPad and a 500-piece uh, digital puzzle that I'm putting together wow. to get me through the flight. So that's common to me. The clothing design came from inspiration from my husband. I had been making um, these jackets that I've been wearing out of Chinese felt brocade for about 15 or 20 years. And unfailingly, someone would stop me in the street and say, I love that. Where did you get it? Mm. And I said, I made it. And they said, would you make me one? And I said for years, no. I didn't want to be tied to a sewing machine. I didn't want to go off into that field when I was doing so many other things. So about four years ago, my husband wanted to do a fundraiser for his institute. And uh, he said, I'm having a fashion show and you will be one of the designers. Whip it up. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) He was my inspiration. And I said, okay, and from that first fashion show, and one of the coats walked off of the fashion show onto somebody's back, I said, okay, I'll do this. And I decided to do a custom line of coats. So it's still not tying me with an anchor to the sewing machine, but it's pleasurably tying me to the sewing machine.
1: Yes, in a way that you can derive joy and happiness from making these pieces. Yes, yeah. and I, I kind of
0: sell them as pieces of art. I try to make whatever I do um, an artistic expression. Mm -hmm. So sewing for me is an artistic expression that I share with the world, and people get to glow wearing one of my created uh, jackets.
1: You know, Daphne, in in learning about you as I've been preparing for us to speak today, we have just a lot of commonalities. And and one of them is that Mm -hmm. I'm an artist as well. I'm a glass artist and I cast and blow glass from a furnace. And I love thank you. And so my way to give back, I, I have noticed that people in wheelchairs have not been able to access glass blowing or glass casting because of the physical demands so i created a nonprofit called the yes foundation inc and it took me 8 years but i got a us patent on my invention that allows people to blow and cast glass from their wheelchairs and wow thank you i taught the first class to a boy with autism in americus georgia in January of this year and a grandmother uh-huh. burst out crying. God bless you for what you have done for this boy to be able to blow glass from his wheelchair at mobile glass blowing studios in America's Georgia. So I just like people to know, go check out the yes foundation com. I've put all of my own money in it for the last 10 years and the benches are available for sale. And I just love that you, you know, are, are influencing the world through your passions in ways that resonate with you. So it doesn't become exact exhausting or something depleting. Cause I've had to learn how to do that as well. I'm still yeah. learning. <laughs> We're all learning as we go. Yeah. This is a lot of the fun part of it. Yes. And then, so that also you have a cookbook out. Will you talk to us about this? I have
0: been, uh, I was raised with a great cook. My mom was a great cook and she was a homemaker. So, She cooked all the time. Um, I always was in the kitchen with her watching or doing or preparing. And as I grew up, I appreciated the fact that other people contributed to uh, whatever the menu was that we were eating and learning from other people what their favorites were. And then I started collecting recipes. And I collected recipes from the people that we worked with when I was doing television uh, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Wow! All the cast members, the crew. We would have parties, of course, the rap parties and lots of other parties that we'd have while we were shooting. And I would cull a recipe from somebody from something that I liked. I collected these recipes for years, and they sat on my computer. And once I started publishing the art book. It was still on my computer. And my girlfriend said, when are you going to get that cookbook off your computer? I said, oh, see, I can't right now because I'm talking about doors and I can't see how it fits in. And and marketing got in the way. Till finally, I got through all of the four books that I really wanted to do. and I said, now is the time. People need to go back to their kitchens and learn how to cook. Because all of this eating out is making us a big, fat society. Mm. And we need to learn how to teach our families how to eat properly. So I said, okay, I'll ride this wave and I'll get this cookbook out. And I said, well, let me get a little bit of a memoir here. Because people are starting, you get to a certain age and people say, when are you going to write your memoir? I'm going, I'm not old enough yet. Mm. (laughs) But I, I said, oh, I'll give a little piece of a memoir in this book. And I did, and I also know that a lot of people don't have the skills that they need to set up a kitchen or to set a table. They just were never exposed to it, so I exposed them to it in this book. And it's a how-to book, but it's also a book of stories of the people that I met where I got the recipes from how to do this cooking thing by having a lot of fun. So the recipes have jokes in them. And they have little funny anecdotes all through the recipe. So that's my cookbook. And I just absolutely was thrilled when I got it off the press.
1: You know, I love the humor in your cookbook. For example, King Tim's King Crab Legs, your husband's uh-huh. dish, drink a beer, put some beer in the crab legs. It's it's how people, how you really cook when you're feeling passion towards cooking. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I really like that. Yeah, and also you know, sometimes when I've gone to a cookbook or a recipe, I haven't even know what an ingredient is, and I'm googling what is like caster sugar or something. And I like that yeah. you just break down the basics of making cooking, yeah. like demystifying it.
0: Yeah, because it shouldn't be some ancient art. <laughs> it right. should be a daily ritual of joy. Yeah. So,
1: we also have uh, in common New Orleans. Yes, let's talk about that. I know you do. So, Frank's Place. Yeah, I love that. Frank's Place is a TV sitcom that your husband produced, you and him starred in together. I love the humor of that show. And there's some nuances. I think you'd have to know Louisiana. For instance, like in one of the episodes, two of the gentlemen that are that are kind of like tough and intimidating talk about being rehabilitated at Angola, which is a maximum security prison that I worked at for a year following Hurricane Katrina. And I thought it's just funny. You'd have to know some of those things.
0: Yeah. And the culture in New Orleans is quite different than the culture anywhere else. Well, talk to us about that. Being able to express that culture was a joy. And meeting all those wonderful people
1: that these characters were based on uh was also quite a hoot. Yeah, we were talking about Austin Leslie, the chef. Is that what Frank's mm-hmm. po- is that who the show was based from? It was a
0: combination of he and a little bit of Dookie Chase. But oh, yeah. mostly Austin Leslie. And Austin came up and uh cooked for us on set sometimes. So no that was way. really nice.
1: Oh, that's special. Oh, yeah. So I'd love to talk about your you were one of the first African-American women in public television. You were the first African-American woman to be on the cover of Glamour magazine. Can you talk to us about some of how these things, how you were a part of these things?
0: I turned left instead of right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I was going on about my life. Um, My family was very keen on um, dedicating yourself to getting a good education. And when you start off as a bright child and you get fed well mentally, then you succeed in education. So I was a bright child and was kind of moved around from school to school in New York with different specialty programs and ultimately got uh, took the test for the Bronx High School of Science, where I graduated from in high school, and at Front Science, we had um, recruiters from colleges that came to gather us and convince us to come to their schools, and I met a man from Northwestern University. So I kind of looked at that and applied to Northwestern, and I applied to Brandeis, and I applied to a state school, and the counseling department couldn't handle any more than three applications from each student because my graduating class had 958 kids in it. Okay, wow. And uh, 957 of them went to college.
1: Wow, so impressive. They
0: said, you get three applications, that's all we can process. And I, those are the three schools I chose and got into all three of them. But I had been to Boston before, had never been to Chicago. So I said, ah, let me go out, uh, see what Chicago's like. I'm telling you, this is how my life has been. Mm. I make a choice just based on a whim. The whim was, oh, what's Chicago like? I've never been there. <laughs> so I get to Northwestern, and I had a had received um, a scholarship, a National Merit Scholarship. So my junior high school teacher knew somebody at 17 Magazine, and uh, told them that I had gotten this scholarship. And they had an issue in January of every year called the Real Girl Issue. And they didn't use models. They used real girls who had achieved something. And they selected me as one of those girls. Well, it turned out that I did a full-page presentation in the large format 17 magazine, not what it is now. And I leaned forward a modeling agent back in new york saw the picture and invited me to come register with her wow needless to say i was in chicago and she was in new york (laughs) but i flew back and forth between new york and chicago my whole sophomore junior year and i tell you united airlines had a round trip student fare flight from chicago to new york and back for 25 dollars
1: I heard you talk about that, and it's unbelievable to think that was the It's cost.
0: unbelievable. So you just go to the airport, you go to work, you come back, you go back to school. It was like commuting for me. And I had found, I had hooked up with a wonderful woman who became my mentor when I got to New York. And she would call me in to do editorials for all sorts of magazines. And then she'd call me in to do what she called a cover try. And we kept doing cover tries. For a couple of trips and nothing ever came of it. And one day she called me and she said, just come today. Um, don't wear a whole lot of makeup. We're just going to put on some mascara and some lip gloss. I've got a red jacket. If You wear a red turtleneck if you have one. I said, okay, I got that. And I got to the studio and she said, sit on the window over there. And I sat on the window. Somebody came out of a room with a camera and took Pictures of me for maybe about eight minutes. And she said, okay, we're done. Back to school. So I went back to school. Then I walked along the street a couple of months later, and on the newsstand was me on the cover of Glamour Magazine sitting on that window. Sill.
1: How did you feel seeing that?
0: I was uh, dumbfounded.
1: <laughs> I was going, wow. <laughs> wow.
0: And I did not know that I was the first black woman on the cover. I didn't know all the first black things that I did. I just did things, and I happened to be the first black to do it. Mm -hmm. So being a pioneer, sometimes you get shot in the back, but sometimes you make a mark. I like that. And I'm happy to have made lots of little marks.
1: You know, even the way you attended college, Daphne, that's not the traditional way, were you, I, I, it's hard to imagine being in college, flying between Chicago, New York, modeling. Were you, did you feel fear? Were you excited? Like you didn't have any models for this. Like how is that experience in itself for you? It was
0: an adventure. My whole life has been an adventure. I've gone into these adventures with open eyes, with a good background in sense of self, and in, grounded in humility, hmm. and I just took each opportunity as an adventure. And I said, what am I going to learn this time? And, boy, I learned so much stuff every step of the way. I know what goes on behind the camera. I know how to find my light because I know lighting now. <laughs> it's, so many things you learn just by paying attention to what's going on around you. Yes. And all those little pieces of information become warehoused in your soul and you never know when you're going to need them or when you're going to use them. But they're there when you need them.
1: Daphne, we're going to pause for a quick commercial break and I'll be right back to you. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Enjoy.
1: And in all, make the world a better place for everyone. I'm with Daphne Maxwell-Reed. And we were just talking, Daphne, about some of your early college experiences that you flowed by being open to. I want to talk to you about the issue when you were were on the cover of Glamour. That was in 1969, I believe. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And just race issues and racism that you experienced at college at Northwestern University. Can you talk to us about about some of those experiences?
0: Well, when I got to Northwestern, I was one in a group of about 36 black students who had been recruited to help the diversity problem that they had at Northwestern University. It was basically an all-white university. There were sprinklings of black students there, but I could probably count them on both hands. So out of a population of 5,000 students, Mm -hmm. there were 36 black students in my class. Wow. And uh, (laughs) that was a little different than growing up in New York, where I was raised in a multicultural situation with people from all over the world. I got to my dorm and um, somebody said, oh, I'm not housing with no, and they said the N-word. And I turned around and said, well, where are they? I don't know what you're talking about. I said, let me get my own room here. So it was blatant racism that I walked into. And instead of being thrown by it, what I felt was how sad for them that they're so ignorant Mm -hmm. So I was just going on about my business and doing what I needed to do to get through school. But um, I had some roommates my sophomore year who threw my name in the hat because I was modeling. They threw my name in the hat for homecoming queen. I didn't even know what a homecoming queen was. (laughs) But I was selected to be on the court. I was one of five young ladies who was running for queen. Now, I worked in Chicago, I worked in New York, I didn't hang around on campus much, so I don't know how it happened, but they elected me queen, and it not only startled me, the president was aghast and could barely speak to me, and he said, I'm just going to hold this on your head until they take pictures, and he turned and he walked away. And I said, oh, so now I'm the home. what do I do now? <laughs> and they marched me over some other place where we were being presented to the John Evans Society, which were alumni from years back who came Homecoming weekends to support the university. And one by one, the court was announced and you would hear a swell of applause go up from backstage and... They introduced the other four girls who happened to be white, and uh, you heard the applause. And then they had introduced the queen. And I walked out on the stage, and there was dead silence. Wow. And I said, Thank you very much. I walked off the stage and went back to my dorm. <laughs> That's how I was treated as Homecoming Queen. And then the yearbook came out. Mm-hmm. And instead of the five page, that the Homecoming Queens for the past 40 years had shared, there was a single picture of me before the table of contents, and my name was nowhere in the book. Wow. So I went to the yearbook editor and said, young lady, is there some reason why I didn't get anything in the yearbook? And she said, well, it wasn't important this year. I said I will remember that for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I graduated from Northwestern I said you are not important and I I'm, you will never get a dime from me. So don't ask. It took them 30 years to screw up the courage to
1: ask me for money. And I said no. You know, and concurrently but on- I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Go ahead. What was the question? you were not acknowledged by your own university yet jet magazine yeah. did a spread about you being homecoming queen isn't is that correct jet magazine put me on the cover my wow. community yes recognized
0: that i was a homecoming queen and it was black press from all over the united states who came to the game that next day and i was in the amsterdam news and the st louis Gazette and all over the place, but not in Northwestern's um, journal.
1: <laughs> you know, and I really want to okay. s- set the tone for listeners. I heard you speak about this in another interview where where you really talked mm-hmm. about the experience of, of g- getting to Northwestern. And correct me if I'm not s- saying this story correctly, but it really just spoke to my heart that when you met uh, your roommate, a roommate that called you the N-word... And then you thought, okay, yes. I'm not going to live with this person, rightfully so. You went to try to get a new room, but only the white student could request a it roommate change, room. right? Not a black student. Is that correct? Correct. We wow. could not choose with whom we lived. Wow. We were uh, They could,
0: but we could not. But I got a room by myself, so I didn't have to choose to live with someone else.
1: Okay. <laughs> How did you cope with that at the time being, you know, being on the cover of glamor featured in jet magazine yet. Y- yet at your own. Okay. How did you deal with, with the, the hurt rejection? I, I don't know what, I don't want to put words to no, your mouth. No, there was no hurt. I, okay, I, I felt very sorry for them. Yeah. They
0: were ignorant people. <clears throat> and I said, they have a lot to learn. And I went on about my business. I was there to get a job done, get an education. And I had met, a young man who was going to be my future husband. Mm. So I was quite busy.
1: (laughs) Just passionately living your life. I was. And totally ignoring any
0: slight that they thought that they put. I I don't accept any kind of um, slights or limitations or anything that somebody tries to put on me. Mm -hmm. That's their problem. I can put a limitation on myself, but I don't have to accept theirs. So I never did. I never thought I was any less than who I was when I got there. So I went on about my life and had great success. Yes. Never looked back, could care less how they felt then. It really did not disturb me. What kind of peed me off, was that they didn't treat me equally in the yearbook. Now, that really ticked me off. Mm-hmm. So uh, from then on, I decided that Northwestern was not some place I was going to be proud of. So when my son decided he wanted to go to college and he said, I'm going to apply to Northwestern, I said, no, you're not. Right. And it was 40 years later that the Black Alumni Association asked to honor me with a Hall of Fame award and um probably because I was on the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, I won't, you know, deny mm-hmm. that, they knew I had gone to Northwestern. But once they honored me, they asked me to speak on um my experiences at Northwestern.
1: Yes. And
0: I told them about the homecoming. They had no idea. Really? They had no idea. That how would you have an idea? They didn't write it down. Right. <laughs> so- So they went about making sure that the university rectified that. And the following year, I was asked to crown the homecoming queen and to be honored by Northwestern and to be on the board at Northwestern. And I was on the board for a couple of years, and I realized that they really were not able to pursue the diversity inclusion that they thought they wanted because they didn't know how. And I couldn't tell them how, so I suggested some other people to take my place who could guide them to brilliant black students and encourage them to come to Northwestern. Now, there are a lot more black students there now, but it's still quite a minority.
1: And you were also part of a a peaceful sit-in in in the bursar's office during your time at Northwestern as well. Can you tell us about that?
0: Well, 50 years ago in May, we had been trying to get the university to pay attention to black students, to give us a space where we could feel comfortable, because some of the students walked down Sheridan Road and had beer cans thrown at them just because they were black, and they were taunted, and we didn't have a place to gather, so we were looking for a space, like a house or something where we could gather and be comfortable culturally, doing what we wanted to do. And uh, we also wanted some more Black professors and perhaps an African American studies program. Mm -hmm. So we had been asking the university for at least a year for these things and had gotten nowhere. So some of the graduate students and some of the leaders of the Black Student Union that had formed itself and met at somebody's house (laughs) Um, decided it was time for some action to make the university give us an answer and make some moves. And uh, there was a great planning that was going on that most of the black students knew nothing about, but we were asked to be in a certain place at a certain time on this certain morning. And uh, we all lined up. And there was a diversionary action at another building, and we slipped into the bursar's office and locked the doors. Wow. And we were in there for 38 hours while they negotiated. There were a lot of press. Um, We had a contingent of white students um, who decided to aid us by sitting on the steps so that the uh, police would not storm the building because that was one of the options that the university was talking about. And um, we sat there until they listened and had a wonderful man um, who was the new dean of students who negotiated with us for what we needed and uh, was able to take the ball across the line. Beautiful. And we just celebrated our 50th anniversary this May with a coming back of a hundred of us who had been in the sit-in. And it was quite a lovely reunion.
1: Yes. And your mom was, I love how your mom was supportive at that time when it came up. What if you got arrested and your mom said. Mm-hmm. My mom said, let me know if you need bail money, I'll
0: send it for you.
1: Well, My mom, mother
0: was an activist yes. from way back. Yes, I, I was mean, she say was that. a peacenik and a civil rights worker and a community organizer. These
1: are things I knew how to do. And it's important for people to know this story and know these things. I was just horrified to hear about the roommate situation and the university's policies. And <laughs> that wasn't that long ago in 1969. And just. 66. Yeah. Just the importance of, of civil rights, which are human rights, and just being a part of that process. Thank you.
0: The world was a different place back then. But knowing that one person can make a difference, I hope people are listening because it's time for one person to make a difference as we go through life at this point. Don't ever stop thinking that what I can't do anything. Yes, you can, even if you just get up and say i won't have this Mm
1: -hmm. and you have been doing that through your educational activism i know you're a spokesperson for virginia state university and hbcu Mm -hmm. a historically black college and university for listeners that might not know that through your outreach Uh public relations can you talk to us some about that work that you've been doing
0: I was on the board of visitors for the university for eight years and during that time we had the process of selecting presidents for the university and making sure that the curriculum was um, doing as well as it could or modifying it so that we would be more current to what is needed now. Like people need to know how to get out of college and get a job. (laughs) We needed some more practical education. The board of visitors are the ones that help do the heavy lifting and money raising for the university. So I was um, on that board for eight years. And during that time, I was investing a lot of um, my personal money in a studio that my husband and I had built. So I didn't have funds to give them for my donation to um, the cause. And I said, what I would like for you to do is use me... However, you can. Yeah. And they developed a um, a video program that they put on their website called um, VSU Today, and they asked me to host the show. So that's what I've been doing ever since. Even since I've been off the board, I am the face of VSU Today, and encouraging the alumni to reach back and and pull one up and encouraging donors of all kinds to invest in the minds that um, need to be cultivated for our
1: advancement. That's awesome. It's fun. You know, you've been in the public eye since even you were a little girl singing in a choir that I learned you, your choir performed at Lincoln center once it opened did you did you mm-hmm. think that your life and your work would be so visible and have such reach as, as you've been able to have now? I never looked that far ahead. I never envisioned what my
0: life was going to be. My life was what it was that day and what it would be the next day. And I lived my life almost in that mode. Mm-hmm. I accept what is given to me with gracefulness and hopefully graciousness and see what I can learn from whatever is presented to me that day. I also set about living my life with a purpose of exposing people to truth and exposing them to the opportunity to grow from within themselves. You do it with psychology and with that kind of thing, and I try to do it with inspiration, Mm -hmm. being an example of living your life by taking the reins and doing what you want to do with your life, hopefully having it filled with integrity and purpose and moving somebody else's life along to the benefit.
1: Yes. And you did that through your character of Aunt Viv on The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Just such a loved character that people could relate to. And then now through your social activism and through starting a career, a new career at 60. And I can't wait to see what you do now at 70. <laughs> at 70. <laughs> I can't wait either. I've, what is for in the some works? Reason, I'm curious. Uh, I'm just yeah.
0: feeling so open and embraced and loved that
1: um, now people are calling me to do movies and television shows. I'm going, yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> what is on the horizon for you? Um, today
0: <laughs> or tomorrow? Today. Right now I'm getting ready to start shooting a, an independent film called Jacqueline and Jilly. And uh, it's by a friend of mine, Victoria Rowell, wrote it and is producing it. And I play her mother, and there's a uh, granddaughter involved of mine. And it's the life of these three women and their families and the struggle with narcotic addiction mm. uh, from pain medication. Such an important topic And how topic this today. family deals with that situation and their own family secrets that they've kept for many, many years.
1: Wow. A very timely so, topic.
0: Yeah, very timely. But it's funny because when somebody does a movie, they think that it's timely, but they started writing this thing probably eight years ago. Mm. So, movies take a long time to come out. Clearly. And um, it's really convenient to <laughs> It is
1: a timely subject, but it's not always planned. And you and your husband Tim Reed have been together for—is it thirty-eight years now?
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Wow. Thirty. Let's see. Thirty-six marriage and two years in sin. Yeah, thirty-eight years.
1: That's awesome. And to work together and support each other is is just yeah really inspiring. He's a wonderful guy. Yeah. Well, will you let me know next time you come to New Orleans? I want to go to Giacomo's I with you. will
0: because we've got some stuff to do. I want
1: to blow some glass. Yes. i Oh, a yeah. I can teach you a private <laughs> lesson at a local studio. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. And then
0: we're going to go get some of that good food. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Daphne, thank you for being my guest. I've just been so happy this week to be talking to you. You're uh, an amazing spirit.
0: Well, thank you so much, and thank you for your interest in
1: finding out what's been going on in my life. You're welcome. It's been a joy. Thank you. Have a wonderful summer. I will. You too. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. That concludes my show today with Daphne Maxwell Reed. You can find out more about all the things she has done and is going to be doing through her website which is daphnemaxwellreed.com spelled d a p h n e maxwell reed r e i d.com. Thank you for being with me today and please listen in next week as I bring you another show and I hope everyone has a fantastic week. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir only.